Welcome to Mighty Parenting, a podcast with real, raw, and relevant talk about raising teens and parenting young adults. Welcome to Mighty Parenting, a community where we help you raise teens and parent 20-somethings so they can become happy, successful, and emotionally healthy adults. I'm Sandy Fowler, stress relief coach, speaker, and host of the Mighty Parenting Podcast. And a quick reminder to pop on over to sandyfowler.com and get free access to your key to real stress relief. Because if you are a stressed parent, it's hard to be the parent you want to be. Today's episode of the Mighty Parenting Podcast is sponsored by Greenleaf Publishing, publishers of Unraveled, a mother and son story of addiction and redemption. Okay, parents, there are a few things we know that are true here at Mighty Parenting. One is there's always hope. Another is that knowledge helps us to be better parents. So we've shared statistics and information about addiction earlier this year. Today, we have mother and son team, Laura uh, Laura Cookbolt and Tom H. Bolt, they are joining us to share their story. And through there, I think we'll learn a lot. And most importantly, I think that we will find hope and we will learn the importance of asking for help and how we can create a home and a family where that is hopefully a little easier for our kids. Laura and Tom, welcome to Mighty Parenting. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you, Sandy. It's great for the opportunity. Thank you for the opportunity. I, I read your book straight through pretty much. I, you know, one weekend, boom, (laughs) done. You guys did such a beautiful job with that. You shared so beautifully, so openly, and just completely transparent about everything that was going on. And while, you know, largely the book, Tom, is about your addiction, Laura, you also shared in the story that you have an addiction. And I was wondering if you could start out telling us a little bit more about that side. Certainly. I grew up in a family, in the Midwest, in a family uh, that had uh, alcoholics. My mother was an active alcoholic and then ended up in recovery at age 64, which was just amazing. It was so great. And I had a stepfather that was a very, very heavy drinker. And so uh, going back and looking at the genetics prior to my mother, uh, there certainly was indication that some of her family members were also alcoholics. So yes, I think it's um, a family disease. It can be, isn't always. And uh, when I when I was younger and saw my mother's active alcoholism, I swore I wasn't going to be that. I loved my mother. She was a sweet person, but she did suffer from this disease. And, and being a child of an alcoholic, it was somewhat embarrassing to me. And also I was just worried about her health. So seeing her behaviors and her sadness that came along with her addiction, I promised myself I would never be that person. And that shows me how little control I had over the disease or demise of alcoholism, because I certainly am an alcoholic. I'm in recovery. I've been in recovery for a little bit over 12 years. And um, I had my fair share of experimenting with very uh, heavy drugs in college and when I was in graduate school. But uh, the the breaking of the patterns in the family were started by my mother because she got sober 
And so even though at that time, I don't know that I was in the depth of my addiction, uh, I could see that it's possible. I never, ever thought, not that I didn't have faith in my mother. I just didn't have faith in, in the irresponsibility of drinking so much, which is what I thought it was. I didn't understand its controlling nature. I never thought I'd see her get sober. And, and something clicked when we did an intervention and, and uh, she was sober till the day she died. My mother basically broke the chain in the, in the family lineage of, of alcoholism by getting sober. And that was enlightening for me because she was the first person that I knew that well that was able to, to get sober and remain sober until she died. And I always felt that, well, if she could do it, anybody could do it. And as I got a little bit deeper into my own abuse in addiction with alcoholism, um, I, I, I went through the normal sick process of thinking, well, I'm not an alcoholic, or if I am, I can control it. And I think that's the irony of the whole thing. I mean, you can't, one cannot control alcohol, their consumption, if indeed they are an alcoholic. And for me, what that meant was looking at myself in the mirror before I would go out and saying to myself, you will not get drunk tonight. You will not drink too much tonight. And I had that conversation repeatedly and I never lived up to that request of myself because inevitably when I went out, one led to five. And I had, I didn't have a turnoff switch. And I really think that my abuse of alcohol and my saturation into the disease became predominantly worse after my fourth child was about two years old. And I then had an increase of volume of alcohol, an increase uh, or more uh, effects of alcohol. And I, I had little or no control over the quantities of alcohol. I felt like I was hiding it, but then I was only kidding myself. So to fast forward, what I, what was the, the bottom for me was a car accident I had on Halloween night. I crashed my car and I was able to get the car home but I didn't remember the accident the next morning when I came out to get the car and that shame, that guilt, that fear, that lack of control, that embarrassment, mostly shame and guilt, uh, really had a profound effect on me. And it was at that moment in time that I became still. And I, I really felt like a higher power was doing for me what I couldn't do for myself which was giving me another chance at life by offering solutions to get sober and to maintain sobriety. And fortunately, I, through the grace of, of my higher power, I, I started going to my meetings of recovery within two days. I did call somebody for help in the program. They did take me to my first meeting. And that's all in the book, which is, it's a little bit more detailed. So um, it's, it's pretty interesting, but I was just amazed at how much better I, I felt each day. I didn't worry so much about down the road. What I worried about was not drinking that particular day. That was my focus and getting through the day and taking care of myself. It was a few years later where Tommy 
started to really get into his own addiction. And what I can tell you is that was not unfamiliar to me. And I also was grateful that I was sober so that I could be available to help in the most healthy way possible. Now, when I say that, there were a lot of things that I did that were enabling to him and a lot of mistakes that I made, but I sought counsel. I stayed in my meetings of recovery and I'm not going to tell you life's easy when you're sober, but I can tell you it's a whole lot better. And I'm really glad that I was available um, to be there for Tommy when he, when he finally came to his bottom and realized that he wanted to, to get some help. And one of the things that was interesting for me about your story, Laura, is there were a lot of people who would have looked at you and looked at your life and also said, you're not an alcoholic. You, you're drinking, you're, you're functioning, you're doing everything you need to do. You can't have an addiction. And I think that a lot of us have ideas around what an addiction looks like. And you use the term, you know, hitting bottom, hitting rock bottom when you were talking about Tom's experience. And in reading the story, I think that his experience tends to line up a little bit more with what people think of. And yet we need to understand that addiction isn't just about what your rock bottom looks like. It's about that. It's about what's happening to you and how this is taking over your life. And Tom, so I'm curious for you, when did you realize you were an addict? Well, that's a good question. I think, you know, I, I don't, I don't know that I knew that I was an addict until like for certain until, um, I got to treatment. I, I continued, um, using for a number of years, knowing that something was wrong, but I did, I couldn't, put my my finger on it um and i thought you know all of those years uh i had this false um idea of what an addict or an alcoholic was um and i just i i, I truly believed that for for a number of years and i thought that you know i wasn't uh necessarily homeless or um you know, begging for money on the street. Um, so I, I didn't think that um, I was a an, an addict or, or an alcoholic. I just thought that, you know, I had the combinations wrong or something, uh, something else was wrong with me mentally. Um, but it took, you know, for me to, to be beaten down and, and, um, you know, I had to hit my rock bottom and I had to do that on my own. I think if somebody had forced me to do something, it, you know, my life would probably look entirely different today. I don't, I don't know, but uh, I'm grateful that, you know, I was able to kind of come to the conclusion myself that I needed um, some sort of outside help. Um, and a lot of people that I know that have long-term sobriety came to that same conclusion um, themselves. So I, I think once I got to um, to treatment, to a, to a drug treatment um, center, I started learning a lot more about um, what it was and, and how it affected me and, 
um, it just all made sense. Um, it made too much sense to not be true. You know what I mean? So, so um, that's kind of what it took for me. And that's kind of how I, how I realized it. I mean, I knew that I had an, a problem, but I didn't think that that was the problem. Sandy, I th I really believe that uh, just from the experience that I've had with, you know, other people in the program and people that are in the profession that everybody's bottom is relative. And even though on the outside, it may not look like somebody's an alcoholic or they don't behave al alcoholically, somewhere inside, I knew that I was an alcoholic. I was broken. I was spiritually destitute. I had moments of anxiety and, and mild depression and fears and shame. Um, I had experienced trauma of being verbally abused by a stepmother when I was a little girl, which really contributed to a lot of my neediness and, and things like that. So on the outside, I was really good at making it seem like I had it all together. And there were people, of course, that witnessed my partying and, and, when I lived in New York city, going to graduate school or in co undergraduate in college, they witnessed my behavior as a pretty big partier. But I will say in terms of really falling into a full addiction, a lot of people did respond that way. Well, I didn't see this or I didn't know this. And, you know, there are certain things that, that we used to consider um, or I did growing up that you just don't share with other people. Now I think the world has become a much more compassionate place and um, the vulnerability that it takes to share about your um, depression, your fear, your all the trials you're going through is, is not only courageous, it is incredibly important because there's so many people willing to help people, but they can't help them if they don't know what they're feeling and how they're doing. So in terms of on the outside looking in, we don't know what people have gone through. We don't know what their experiences are. And when we hit this bottom, um, I make it sound so easy getting sober, but I will tell you, I was just flat out ready to surrender. And I compare that to my mother's getting sober and remainder of, you know, ability to remain sober until she died. I look at Tommy's sobriety and not judging, not trying to be judgmental, but at that given time, when he agreed to go to treatment, he was ready to go. The iron was hot. And those are the important things. And it's just like Tommy said, I, I didn't have somebody twisting my arm, you know, giving them ultimatums. We did suggest it several times prior to that. And he wanted to try to do it himself. And it took his realizing that he wanted to get sober um, in order for him to make the phone call and call the treatment centers and get himself enrolled and committed to it. And it's amazingly courageous to, to see that happen, especially at Tommy's age, he was 21 and he could speak to that, but I can really speak to the fact that at age 48, now I'm 61, it was far more acceptable for someone my age to come forth and stop drinking. I wasn't in that stage of life where, you know, you're in college, you're partying, everybody's partying. They want to know why you're not drinking. Oh, come on, man. You're not an alcoholic. Go ahead, have another drink or do another bump of Coke, or let's take another 
oxy or whatever. It's it's completely uh, different generationally, I think. So let's talk about some of this a little bit. Laura, Tom, you you both talked about this idea that when you, Tom, when you went to get treatment, you had decided to go. However, there's this span of time that passed where you were actively addicted, yes. living with your parents. And, you know, we're talking to parents here. Our mighty parents are sitting there. Maybe they know they have a child who's an addict. Maybe they have a child who they're, they're a little concerned about their partying mm -hmm. and their habits. Maybe they're just wondering up front, like, how do right. I help prevent this? So I'm, I'm kind of wondering, you know, what did this look like for you, Tom, living with your parents who you know cared about you? You had a re good relationship then, you still yeah. do now. What did that look and feel like for you? Like, what can parents learn from your story about how they interact with their kids and help move them to a place of wanting help? I think that's a great question. I was literally just thinking um, about bringing that up because it's, we're talking to parents here. So it's, um, God, it is, it, you know, it is such a hard topic to talk about because it, it goes against um, everything that, you know, a person would, their instincts um, to just reach in and grab and help that, that, that child and, you know, put them somewhere. You know, I, I see a lot of kids that um, were sent to um, wilderness. Um, you know, I think that was a big thing for a while. Um, and you would go out and, and if the kid was, if the child was having trouble with, with addiction issues or, or something like that, they would send them to, to wilderness and <clears throat> hopes that when they come back, they're fixed. Um, I hope to be proven wrong on that, but I, in, in my experience, I haven't, um, met anyone that has done that and came back and, um, stayed sober. And so I think when it's a very difficult situation to be in for a parent, because you want to, you want your child to be happy and live a great life and not struggle. But at the same time, this is something that it, it, it has to come from the addict. Uh, the change has to come from them. And there, I think Al-Anon is a great, um, is a great, amazing resource um, for parents. Um, and so I can't imagine what it was like for my parents to watch me um, come home, you know, in the mornings or in the night or, or whenever and, and see me, you know, I'd come home with black eyes or, um, broken bones or, you know, <clears throat> uh, I woke up that morning and I had a broken hand and a black eye and missing part of my tooth. And, you know, I, I can't imagine what, what it was like for them, but I can say that we did have discussions, uh, you know, multiple times, you know, we're worried about your, um, your drug use or we're worried about you doing these things or, or, or that. And, 
Um, so I, I knew they were concerned, but I'm very grateful that I, I'm grateful that they let me come to the conclusion on my own. And I'm grateful that I did, um, cause not everybody does. Um, but everybody that, that I know that got sober at a young age, uh, all of them came to the conclusion on their own. They kind of had to hit a rock bottom um, on their own. Um, so it's a, difficult, it's a difficult topic to talk about because nobody wants their child to hit a rock bottom in the first place. Um, so, yeah, Laura, maybe you can, you can fill in the gaps there. But Laura, what I'm wondering here is you mentioned earlier, you know, oh, yes, I did some things that enabled him. So where is that line? If you can't make another person get help, you can't force another person to sobriety. As a parent, how do we not enable and still create a space to, that is encouraging our child to reach out for that help and that sobriety? So that's a, that's a great question. And I think one of the things that I did was make excuses for his behavior in terms of he'll get through it. It's just a stage. It's okay. If he lives here, um, we have, we established boundaries. He had to work and he had to go to school, which he did. Uh, little did I know at school, he wasn't really going to school, but he was enrolled. Uh, so in terms of enabling him, I gave him a lot of opportunity uh, failure after failure. And I didn't really uphold my boundaries. You know, you're in our house and I expect you to behave along, um, the rules that we're, we're asking for, um, be home at a certain time. Let us know where you are just so we don't worry. Uh, no drugs in the house. Uh, we tried all these things and I feel like we didn't live up to our demands with him. And as a result, uh, the boundaries were broken on several occasions. So the solution for me uh, at that time was not to kick him out of the house. It, it was for me to seek more help, to figure out how I could take care of myself and how I could be a more effective parent. And I worked with a therapist, but Al-Anon is a great opportunity to learn about setting boundaries and boundaries that you can stick to. And I think as Tommy got more into his addiction, uh, I think that that day, for example, when I walked up to his room and found that he had been in a fight and he was bloody and he was a mess and hung over, I, I was prepared to say, you're going to uh, a treatment center or you're not living here anymore. And it was one of the situations where he was actually ready himself and maybe he was ready for quite some time, but he was fearful, but he was ready. And I don't know how to explain that fateful moment, but, um, you know, for parents to, to make excuses and not be honest with what's going on with their child, I think that's probably the biggest disservice. I mean, there are things that we did do to sit down and talk to Tommy about his drug use and what can we do to help him? And, and is, does he want to go to rehab and have very as real of a conversation as you could possibly have 
because they're the elephants in the room and there's no denying it. So the communication has to be uh, extremely uh, important, the honest communication. And I think all those little tips that I picked up um, in therapy really helped with distancing myself, but honoring my boundaries. Mm -hmm. An interesting thing you mentioned there, Laura, because earlier Tommy said that he had a, a different idea of what an addict would look like as many of us do. And right here, Laura, you said, we talked to him about his addiction. So Tom, I'm curious how that was playing out for you. If your parents were talking to you and saying, hey, we see you have an addiction and yet you didn't think you looked like an addict, do you remember what was happening in your mind along those lines? I do. I mean, I, I, I thought that, um, you know, I, it's going to sound crazy, but I thought I had some sort of mental or emotional problem that couldn't be figured out by doctors or, or therapists that I had seen in the past. So I was trying to just calm that on my own. And um, you know, uh, which is exactly what, you know, it, it basically kind of describes drug addiction and, and alcoholism is self-medicating and, um, all of that stuff. But in, in my mind, as time went on, I got closer and closer to, to the belief that I was an addict. Um, yeah, that, I mean, you know, it was just a, I was just so confused and just so just, you know, I was so in it that I just, I couldn't see anything else. You know, there's so much that goes on from a parent's perspective with a child that's a teenager. There's, there's awkwardness, there's, there are failures, there are all kinds of emotional challenges that are are really actually part of growing up. And um, yeah, a lot of it is the ability to, or not the ability, but the um, occasion to excuse or dismiss behaviors because we think that, oh, he'll just get over it. He'll go through it. It's just a phase. But deep down, we know that it's not right. And if, if there are listeners out there that have multiple children, even more than one, um, and they're concerned about one in particular, a lot of times we tend to hyper-focus on the, on the child that seems to struggle the most. And the other ones are sort of thrown to the wind to kind of raise themselves because having somebody in your, in your family that has a problem with drugs and alcohol or anxiety or, or anything else for that matter demands certain attention, but it certainly doesn't mean that you give it all to the child with the addiction. And those are, that's one of the things that I've learned. We have ourselves to take care of. We have other children to take care of. Some of us have extended family and, and our own parents to take care of. We have work, you know, we have reality because life happens. And I tended to focus a little bit too much on Tommy's failures and successes and tried to bail him out. And I think in, in some format, supporting your child 
And helping your child is different from bailing them out all the time. And I think that's pretty much where I went wrong. But now I want, I'm, I'm going to wrap this up because I know the time is limited. Um, we did offer uh, when Tommy was trying to stop drugs and alcohol on his own, particularly opiates, he had reactions where he would throw up and he, he sort of paced almost as if he were a caged animal. There are a lot of effects from, from stopping drugs, especially benzos, which can be very dangerous and opiates and things like that. And I, I said to him, we're going to get you through this. And then I think that you ought to go to rehab. And he said, no, how about if I do it on my own? And I said, knowing after having met with this therapist, I said, go ahead, give it, give it your best shot. And then all I could do was just pray like hell that he didn't die in a car accident or die of an overdose. I just prayed like hell. I wanted him to hit rock bottom, but not at any loss of life of his or others. I wanted him to want to get sober. I know what that feels like. I know that it's possible. And if I keep putting a bandaid on everything and, and, and talking to him and nagging him, it's not going to make it happen any faster, but the boundaries are important. You know, you don't, you don't get handouts of money. You're going to have a job. You're going to go to school. If you're going to live in this house, you're going to help around the house. There are things that you're going to have to do. And uh, Tommy did those things. So was he high functioning? I don't think so. Did he, did he clean his room? Did he help with the chores? Did he help driving with some of his brothers? Yes. Did he make dinners for us when, when things were busy? Yes, he did. Did he go to school? Yes, he did. A little to, you know, my chagrin, he did not, he was not really attending classes. Um, was he working? Yes, he was working. So, um, and eventually all those things, you know, it only gets worse. It only goes downhill, right? So it's only a question of time before somebody really hits a rock bottom. You, I, I feel like you just have to let them do it. And that's not easy. Oh, that's the hardest thing in the world to do. Well, and the other thing is in the book, you said that people are afraid of showing their mess outside the family. You know, they don't want anyone to see their messy insides showing on the outside kind of a thing. And so families tend to hide the truth and hide from the truth because you don't want others to see it. You don't want them to judge you. You don't want them to judge your child. This is again, one of these places, there's so many places in this conversation where I feel the pull of two different things. And one is what I kind of hear you saying, Laura, is and you too, Tom, you, you said we need to, to allow this messiness to happen. We need to let this person, this child, see what their addiction is doing to them to help them get to that point of being willing to ask for help. And yet we want to hide it. So that, how do we walk right. that? Well, I think it's best if, if you have faith, if you could pray on it, if you could seek help in Al-Anon. I think it's best that um, that we all really come to believe that it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks because the disservice that we're doing to our own family by trying to keep it a big secret is really so much more harmful to all the other siblings. It's not fair to the other siblings. I mean, it is an elephant in the room. It is what it is. Say what it is. My son has a struggle with alcohol and drugs, and we're doing the best we can to try to, to get him to where he will really, you know, agree to getting some help, but he has to want to do it for it to work. 
So Tom, I have a couple last questions for you. One is, can you, can you pinpoint, do you know if there were things that your family did that helped you feel okay and comfortable enough to go to them when you were ready for help? To, you know, yes. they kept that kind of open relationship. Well, I've always, I've always been able to talk to them about certain things. It was just what I was willing to, to talk about. You know, I think that, um, to be completely honest with you, I think when, when that point happened, I just didn't know. I just, I, I would have listened to anyone at that point. Um, I, I think that, um, I was so ready for something different and knew that I couldn't do it, uh, that I was just ready to accept whatever was recommended. Um, I think it's important to keep a line of communication open. Um, and you know, I, I was able to communicate, but when you're in, when I was in my addiction, I didn't want to, you know, I didn't want to communicate that, I was using drugs and drinking a lot. I mean, I didn't want to, you know, I wanted to look um, like I had it all together when I clearly did it. Um, so I think it just became easier for me when I just had no other option. Um, you know, and, and, and boundaries were starting to get set and uh, they were starting to be more aggressive um so i knew that i was at the end of my end of my rope and what does your life look like now tom oh you know my life today is uh amazing um i you know if you would have asked me uh if you would have actually if you would have told me where i am now five years ago i, I would have I wouldn't have believed you, you know, um, but I, I, I run a small business. Um, I have an amazing girlfriend. She has um, a four-year-old daughter and um, I love them both very much. And, um, you know, I, I, uh, I do things on a daily basis to, to um, help myself stay sober and sane. Um, you know, we're, we're looking at houses right now, which is something that I never, um, really thought that I would, I would do. Um, and I'm, uh, I'm happy, you know, it's not all, um, rainbows and, and butterflies every day. Um, but my life is, is, um, absolutely, um, incredible today. Well, I want to thank you both for taking the time to be here and even more so for being so candid and sharing your stories. These were obviously painful times in both your lives, in your entire family's life. And yet sharing these stories can impact other people so much, whether whether maybe we're facing an addiction, we have a child is, we're supporting a friend, a neighbor, or a coworker who they or their child has an addiction. These, these insights help us all to 
be better for each other. So thank you so much for doing this. And where can we find you online? So the, our website is unraveledthebook.com. And on our website, you'll be able to listen to various podcasts, read some of our bios and connect with a email address. We welcome emails from everybody. We're happy to, to help in any way we can. That's what this the recovery is all about is extending our hand to others as people did for us when we were coming into the, into recovery and to remain a person of community service. So please visit unravelthebook.com. And I hope you read, read our book and, and it provides people with some hope and, and, uh, or at least some sympathy and empathy for what other parents and, and families are going through. Well, thank you again so much. And thank you parents for being here. Remember that if you're here, if you're listening, you are a mighty parent, you got this. And I will see you next week. <laughs>